Welcome back to the Track One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Conrad. I'm Denise. And I'm Simon. This time we're returning to the surreal world of the Doctor Who annuals with the latest instalment of Audio Annuals, which features a story from each of the first six Doctors brought vividly to life by a star-studded lineup of Doctor Who luminaries, or Whominaries if you will, Dan Stanley, <laughs> Jeffrey Beavers, Annika Wills, John Culshaw, Louise Jameson and Colin Baker himself. So this is an uh, interesting crop of stories, guys. Do you, any of you remember these from reading them as, as children? Yes. <laughs> we, we all looked at Sai. We just looked straight at Sai. It's true. Yeah, I, I, I remember these all really well. So the annuals were um, pretty much the first Doctor Who merchandise I collected. So my very first Doctor Who annual is one of the and has one of the stories that we are talking about today that I picked up at the school fair in 1980. So it's not my original copy because my sister, my naughty little sister, one day when I was at school, took my copy of the 1979 Doctor Who annual and cut it to pieces. (gasps) She didn't leave a single story intact. She just took scissors to it and cut. (laughs) What had you done to her? Oh, I just existed. I think that was wow. that was it. And second question: What did you do with the body? <laughs> she's still around. Just. Okay. Whew, she's lucky. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I remember my mum saying she walked in and just saw my sister with a pair of scissors with a great big smile on her face, cutting up my Doctor Who annual. <laughs> wow. Should we just should we just end it there, Mark? It's all gone a bit dark. Not as dark as some of the stories in this collection. <laughs> well, that is that is the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> yeah, I'll put a trigger warning in the show notes. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the the first four stories in particular are quite interesting here. I feel like they they alternate between showing the doctor not acting like the doctor. Um, and and acting quite doctory in a way. I suppose we'll, we'll uh, explore it a bit more detail as we go through the stories. But it's interesting how uh, some of the writers obviously have very very passing <laughs> knowledge of Doctor Who, mm. um, and, and some of those seem to be a bit more um, a bit more informed. And it it's not not really what you think as well. It's not so much just the earlier ones or or just the later ones. So it's um, yeah, an interesting collection to, to dive into so the first story is sons of the crab from the 1966 annual yes that's right and it's read by dan starkey who always does a brilliant job of these things he always seems to throw himself into it now this story is william hartnell's doctor materializes on this strange planet and the streets are teeming with these mutant creatures and they're not just mutants they actually mutate as you watch them they grow heads they sort of melt from one form into another they lurch around and they are in absolute misery or agony and it's obviously extremely extremely frightening as you would expect it to be um that's described as outlandish and freakish of course it is um it's you know, the William Hartnell's Doctor being William Hartnell's Doctor, he is sort of quite affronted by this deviation from the normal human form. 
Whereas, of course, Matt Smith's doctor would have been running up to them all saying, oh, you're beautiful. Oh, you're beautiful. But uh, times have changed, haven't they? But um, he is brought into one of the little buildings that uh, of which this city is made and um, imprisoned in a force field and um, by some scientists. So, I mean, this is one of those times where there's a little bit of confusion between what is a universe and what is a galaxy. <laughs> and the Crab Nebula is, of course, a star system. It's the remnant of a supernova. So, uh, but it's, so he wasn't in a separate universe. But um, actually, some of the language in this story is beautiful. And I think it's quite hard science fiction. And I have seen Netflix series that have been built on thinner premises than this Doctor Who story. <laughs> I was actually quite impressed. I mean, it actually had me Googling things, which you wouldn't always expect from a Doctor Who story. So at one point, the, um, the glow in this... Um, in this laboratory is described as eldritch blue and um, so I thought I'm going to look that up and uh, the word eldritch it means otherworldly, weird, ghostly or uncanny which is good but there is also a character called eldritch blue in a book called love and sex in the Clathu mythos so uh, <laughs> one for the reading list there um, one thing of course that they would change if they did make it into a Netflix series is the name of the um, people on this planet which is Yend which is a hell of a word isn't it so you know the, the boss is the chief Yend <laughs> which I think Dan Starkey quite enjoys pronouncing and um so they have this discussion about biological genetic stability. The people of this planet, in fact, the entire system have completely lost it. And um, so they're very confused by the doctor who hasn't changed his appearance one jot in all of the time that they've been observing him. And um, so they take him to the chief Yend, who has also picked up the TARDIS in the meantime much to the Doctor's relief. Um, two strange objects appear at the same time. They must be related. So I don't know who I'm going to get it inside, but anyway. And then they had quite this interesting discussion about uh, biology and physics, and the chief Yend was concerned with biology. He said, you know, anything material like the TARDIS, he says, everything material waits to be discovered. And again, that's a hell of an interesting idea to just throw into a Doctor Who story. I mean, I think there's a Björk lyric in The Modern Things which says something very similar, that everything's just waiting in a cave for the right moment and then it will come out, you know, whether it's a car or anything else. But, uh, but yes, um, it doesn't seem to be a specific quote, but it is an idea that comes up from time to time in essays and poetry. Um, so the cause of this genetic accident that means that they can no longer sustain their fixed biological form is a 
star called Mortain swam into their system. Again, beautiful poetry. And um, its radiation meant that they could no longer have stable generic genetic structure. Um, so there's a lot of exposition, of course, <laughs> and the doctor <laughs> quite blustery. Um, there's nothing he can do to save this situation. He's just doesn't like the way the people are dealing with it, really. Um, he's worried that he's going to be infected himself, but luckily it only affects young people. Um, and, of course, at that time, they didn't know that he wasn't human anyway. That wasn't part of Doctor Who law by that point. So the chief Yend decides to let him go, but only if he takes these test tube embryos with him so that the people of the planet will have a chance at life elsewhere. And reluctantly, very reluctantly, the doctor does this, but uh, they all die when he dematerializes because the radiation is necessary for them in the same way as the radiation was necessary for the Daleks in the um, first Dalek story. So, yeah, I was impressed by this story I must admit there are so many interesting ideas and sidebars just crammed in there that uh, yeah I liked it I don't know how a eight or nine year old boy would have reacted to it but uh, yeah it's an it's an interesting one yeah it's like existential angst on Christmas day 1965 <laughs> for a whole generation of boys and girls I mean, that last line where it says their first mistake had been their last. It's just, mm. wow. Oh, my God. It's just awful. Because <laughs> it's, it's a suggestion that it's because they were experimenting with test tube babies that made them susceptible to the rogue star's radiation, isn't there? Which sounds mm. a bit like uh, test tube babies are on the horizon. Uh, the writer of this doesn't particularly... Um, think that that's that's good. It's meddling with nature, mm. or whatever. So he's written a bit of a parable about um, <laughs> about why this yeah. would be so wrong, even to the extent that all those poor embryos die at the end, uh, which is a really really dark. Ending, but it's as if like, no, you don't play God because this is what will happen. You'll all turn into eggs with three heads. Uh, it'll be running around uh, mindlessly. So I wasn't sure when the first test tube baby had been born, but it wasn't until 1978. So it must have been something that was uh, kind of on the cards or, or you know, kind of mm. research going towards at this stage. Yes, yeah. It's interesting how these early stories are so sort of speculative science fiction, aren't they? They're really, it's weird because they're so sort of beautiful and colourful and it feels like it's like the age of the picture book. And some of it's still mm. a little bit magical and it can be a bit fantasy, but this is definitely kind of, these early ones definitely do sort of forge away, don't they, at those new sort of exciting yes. ideas. There's, sort of, there's a real sense of wonder and curiosity about it. I did find myself wondering if it was a sort of science fiction story that some or a science fiction idea that the writer already had and he just sort of crowbarred the Doctor into it for the occasion. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's almost a wasted idea in um, in a Doctor Who annual. I would, I would argue, but then of course I'd never have seen it if it wasn't in a Doctor Who annual. So it might have broken the budget for the 
<laughs> the TV having the uh, the streets full of, of mutants uh, constantly changing their shape. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that might have been quite badly realised. <laughs> and it's strange because I'm I'm just flicking through the annual itself, and it doesn't depicts the mutating people at all which you would think would be the obvious thing to go for but it does have this wonderful picture of William Hartnell behind bars which is just beautifully done yeah, that's mm. I'm, I'm sorry everyone listening you can't actually see that <laughs> we really well, you can post it in the show notes can't you yeah yeah, uh, yeah and it's it's incredibly serious and dramatic isn't it yeah. but it also does feel kind of like early Doctor Who, in a, in a weird way. I, the Doctor is really well characterised. I think you could see William Hartnell sort of doing all of this. Um, yes. Sort of in there. So I don't know whether that's because um, his Doctor is so easy to um, sort of write for. We just sort of know what he's like. And obviously the um, the writers got to grips with his character really well. But yeah, it, it's, it was good stuff. It's it's slightly weird having the doctor being so kind of bigoted about the ex- appearance of the aliens to begin with, but it does fit more. You can get away with that more with the first incarnation than than the subsequent ones, I think, can't you? Mm. And, and the, 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 they allow you to see inside his thoughts a little bit, and he finds things bothersome or has intense <laughs> irritation. And it's just like it's he is. I think he's really well characterised. I agree. Mm. Like it's definitely him. It doesn't take you any doesn't take you a huge leap just to start hearing and also Dan, um, Dan Starkey does an absolute wonderful Hartnell I mean that's a real treat I think yes yeah yeah he, he he's turned out to be a really great audiobook reader he's he's absolutely superb isn't he yeah. and he does all the great voices for all the characters so I think I've, and as you said Denise he really likes the chief yend and Valcro and Mornagill and all these words that are names that you could just get your your whole sort of mouth around and and just have fun with. He did it uh, one of the earlier ones of these that we looked at, the Sinister Sponge. He did the reading for, and he really goes to town on that one. Like the voice of the of the Sponge, plus it's a it's a Fourth Doctor story, so does the booming Tom Baker impression. Uh, that one's fantastic. I think overall, so Mark, would you say this one that does feel, this is one that does feel fairly authentic? No, I felt like, it, just in terms of, of the Doctor, that that repulsion at, right. at anything that was different and not human, so immediately that he's in the company of humans again, he starts to relax and feel comfortable, even though they've imprisoned him and <laughs> he can't move yeah. or speak or anything. Um, but it, it, as I say, the, the sort of early first Doctor probably is a bit more like that. Yes, yeah. They're, um, if it's not a human, then it's a monster. There aren't any gradations there, are there? Yeah. Which whereas the next story, I think, uh, which is the second Doctor, his reaction to beings that are different is is a bit more sort of in keeping. I thought. Yeah, but uh, I'm with you, Denise. The the language is like it's it, again. It just was a real like a coruscation of sparks. You're like this mm. is a children's book. And, like it was. A, it just really made you realize this is a different world. This is such. Yeah. It's like a different world. It really, really is. And I love the way they, they, they and just little phrases that have sort of gone to us now, really, or we don't use so much. In so many of these stories, it's like, put in the doctor. It's like, put mm. in. But like, we never say that. But it's like it's in all of the, or we rarely like comes up, but it's so commonly used. It's, 
it re- it, yeah, you just realize how bloody old these things are and how old yeah, this program is. Yeah, there's a lot of, because they're obviously finding ways to not have the doctor just say, he said. So yeah. Yes. Anyone yeah. interjects or, or whatever, don't they, all the way through all of these stories. Yeah. Or in the third doctor one, he snaps a lot, doesn't he? Yes. Owlishly. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but it's also a very long story as well. This like it's that's a lot. I think it's the longest story in this collection by a long way. Like quite a long way. It's like twice the length of the others. I yeah, because because the first disc is just the two stories and mm. um the two sort of articles, isn't it? So yeah. the stories are long, considering you've got four stories on the second disc. And it's quite a long read as well. Like they're mm-hmm. they're quite the page count in these early ones are sort of knocking on a hundred. They're quite big annuals compared to about it's like sixty pages for the later ones. So it's mm. and there's more sort of comic strips in the later ones as well. I think, yeah. aren't there? But... Yeah, kids must have had a longer attention span <laughs> back in those days. I, I think they probably did actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's less hours of telly. Yeah, <laughs> mm. fill those days somehow. There's only one channel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make your annual last till Easter. <laughs> I always get the mental image of somebody reading under the covers with a torch, like we used to do. You know, and Sai so still does. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only last night. <laughs> we have need of a trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. So then we skip forward in time to the 1968 annual with only a matter of time. Yeah, so in this one, um, the recently regenerated Doctor Who, uh, travelling with uh, a bright, inquisitive young girl called Polly and a total fucking simpleton called Ben, (laughs) um, (laughs) find their ship TARDIS in the middle of what looks like an invasion fleet heading towards Earth. Um, a doctor identifies them as the fierce and warlike Arcturians, but uh, when they're taken aboard the ship, discover that the Arcturians are in fact a small bird-like alien race who are uh, taking who've taken a sort of generations-long trip across light years, hoping to find refuge on Earth, uh, as their sun is doing something very scientific, causing mass extinction. So they're on the run. Um, but realising how helpless the Arcturians are and the fact that they've long since forgotten how to use their weapons, uh, Doctor Who uh, fears that if they do reach Earth, they'll be mistaken for an invasion fleet and wiped out or their weapons will be used against them. So Doctor Who creates and redirects them through a space tunnel to the ninth dimension and and the aliens go on to find their future. Um, He then... leaving the Doctor to go back playing his music pipe, um, while Polly sympathises with the plight of this endangered alien species, and Ben is presumably left licking light switches. I don't know. (laughs) He's not the brightest spark. So this is is an interesting one. It's... um, it's sort of like half the story is just sort of lots of TARDIS business, and then a very brief story kind of tagged on to the end. But I think... It, it's 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 a relationship. What is going on between these three is uh, has caught my attention. So um, so they describe. I think it's, it's we we really open with with quite a kind of 
I mean, quite a damning uh, portrayal of young Ben. Um, I'll just read you a couple of the of how how it pretty much opens. It says, "Now Ben had never really settled down to the idea that the strange vessel in which they're travelling was a TARDIS police box, etc." Then it sort of goes on. The problems and paradoxes of time only made young Ben's head ache, and it wasn't really much better with Polly. But Polly, being a girl, did seem to have a much better grasp of things than Ben. I mean, we can all agree there. Um, But then it just goes on to give you the Doctor's attitude. There were times when Doctor Who wondered if Ben had the vaguest idea of what they were all doing, where they were all going, and where they had all come from. It continues, now Ben has stared with the exasperation, and it just carries on. Like, they've obviously seen something, a moment of Ben being fairly incredulous or not being sure what's going on. And they've just cast him as a complete, do we say himbo? I don't know, but he is... Adric? Yeah, I mean, sub, sub, sub. This this boy ain't right. You know, this yeah. the, the, the the gates are down, the lights are flashing, but the train ain't coming. You know, this this boy is this boy is is but by contrast, um Polly, while also but is very pretty, but is generally, you know, is described as having a good head on those pretty shoulders. Um and is much more more sensible, sympathetic. Um so yeah, it's a funny old story. It's it it kind of you get the feeling that the writer was just had had a, a sort of good long time writing about the characters and figuring that out, but then he realised he's sort of halfway through this and he's invented this warlike species, gone off and had his tea, come back and thought, oh, we need to wrap this up. Um, okay, yeah, they're not warlike; they're little bird people. They're <laughs> endangered, um, and so basically, oh, but, but they have a one sort of interesting meditation in the middle where the doctor says to the increasingly frustrated Ben who's just now not understanding anything um, that, that it's all down to destiny that the doctor's like we don't really have to do anything because it's all destiny so we just turn up go with the flow and it's all good and this is a newfound discovery it says of his new rejuvenated form that he's got he's now got this insight that you just hey man just ride it out and everything will will find a way um, it's only a matter of time as the story says um yeah, and at, and at one point they're having a discussion with these endangered aliens, and it's actually quite touching. It's kind of you do hear about all they want to do is like they've been travelling for millions of years. They want to evolve again so they can sort of wheel and soar in the skies. And Polly's feeling very kind of, you know, really empathising with them. But and then Ben just wanders off, finds it, goes to a laboratory, picks up a contraption. Um, they realise that he's actually wanted into their hatchery and he's being surrounded by all these birds who are like no no you mustn't be near our eggs so ben just picks something up and just shoots a couple of them <laughs> um now there's a and he and he, he appears though there's a moment here where he appears remorseful like one of these creatures just vanishes and he's like i don't know what i've done i don't know what i've done i didn't mean to began ben oh you know where's those things vanished to was this thing the legendary disintegrator ben right so so he's like oh no what have i done the next line Ben looked longingly at it, but the doctor put it resolutely behind him. So even though he's wiped these two things out, Ben wants another go on that disintegrator. He just wants to destroy as the Ben we know and love uh, likes to do. Um, yeah, and just carries on baffled, really. Um, it's, it's an interesting turnout for the, for the second hmm. Doctor Green. I mean, it was read by Annika Wills, who I think she is somewhat underestimated as a legend, because she is a legend, isn't she's she? A, she's a total legend. Um, but uh, uh, so obviously, I was just thinking, 
because some of these books, they can be a little bit misogynistic at times. They can be a little bit light on female characters. I was like, yeah, big up for um, Polly. Polly's the best, you know. I I hadn't really taken on board that, yeah, that was really some pretty serious Ben-shaming there. <laughs> and I don't think, you know, obviously a lot of his stories don't exist fully, and so I, I don't really have a firm opinion about Ben's character. He's not... He's not my favourite. I think, you know, that Michael Craze died so young is is very, very sad. But, um, you know, he was, he had a sort of role to play where he would get himself into scrapes and he was a bit sort of uh, pugnacious and things like that. And he sort of needed to be as a counterpoint to the Doctor. And then when Jamie came in, he had to counterpoint him as well. But... Uh, yeah, he wasn't that bad, you know. He he wasn't a thickie. He, <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. used to following orders. He was a young young sailor, but uh, yeah, he was always kind of passionate and sort of headstrong, but a sort of but mm-hmm. in a kind of excitable. He had sort of integrity and he was honourable. He was kind of like a bit feisty. Like pugnacious is an excellent word. He was kind of a little bit feisty, and and, and yeah. Annika certainly puts that energy into him, which is really nice. Mm. Yeah, her reading is really good. I love her Ben voice. It's yeah. great. But what's going on with Doctor Who in this in this story? He's awful. Doctor I, I, Who. I, there's just one line that made me laugh in the car when I was listening to this on the way home from work last week. And he just said, glory be, Ben boy. Haven't you been aboard long enough now to know that we don't rely on, more we- on mere weapons in the TARDIS, said Doctor Who. <laughs> glory be, Ben boy. Where did that come from? <laughs> It's a really odd characterization, and obviously, obviously, we're we're still very new with this new rejuvenated Doctor Who. So maybe they just haven't got a handle on on what Patrick Troughton's going to be like. But he's kind of written a bit like William Hartnell, but a bit not like William Hartnell. And it's yeah, it's it's very interesting to read sort of something written really at the genesis of the character, and they haven't really got a handle on him yet at all. Apart from him playing his pipe, don't they say he's wearing a big furry hat or something in this story? Or did I imagine the that? The picture shows the stovepipe hat, doesn't it? Which is really early on for mm. Troughton in his in his yes. era. They mention that in the one Doctor Five Men thing, don't they? It's uh, where he likes to wear lots of different hats. Well, up to a point, you know. Yeah. It's, I think that's how early it is. And I yeah. think, um, like you say, his characterization is a bit more heartless because he, he refers to Ben and Polly as children as well, doesn't he? he yeah. Children. Mind you, in Ben's case, mentally, I think he's probably <laughs> I sort of think there's a few of these annual stories where there's a bit of an antagonistic relationship between the Doctor and Ben. And, and it makes me wonder if, if, if it was so early on that they picked up on... Ben's mistrust in power of the Daleks as to whether this really is still the Doctor. Could and, and be. Yeah, they, they just extrapolated it. it from there. Or, or maybe there was some kind of character description or something that said, you know, he's a bit unsure of the new Doctor at first. And they've picked up and run with it because a lot where they, they're quite argumentative with each other and wind each other up. 
I think that's exactly it. Like Polly is kind of trusting and and you know sort of intuitive, and Ben is suspicious and skeptical. And I think exact that's exactly it. I think they've exactly taken that and just gone. Okay, Ben's like this. He's just doesn't believe. He just doesn't believe anything. But wow, <laughs> he is a piece of work in this. <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of Doctor, I think after the after the the first story, the fact that he isn't phased by them being bird aliens and stuff like that, and his instinct is just to communicate and reach out to them and help them, that feels more Doctory. But yeah, these these bird creatures who've, who've been traveling for generations and generations and generations, only for two of them just to be obliterated by Ben. Um, there, there's no real ramifications from that. The, the doctor sort of vaguely chastises him like he's just made a full path and, and puts him back in the TARDIS. It's it's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're quite forgiving. They just say, the smaller one was not, to, referring to Ben, smaller one was not to know our customs, came the bird-like voice. We cherish our young most carefully, as you can imagine. They are all we have of the past and our only hope for the future. One imagines they might have said that pointedly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But again, it's sort of tapping into the same feeling as the Sons of the Crab, isn't it? Where it's a really sort of heart, almost heartbreakingly dark story. Mm. These poor, poor alien creatures have been through hell. They've been traveling for what, 40,000 years or something like that, and they're devolving and they've lost their wings and are they going to get somewhere and is it, are things going to get better for them? You can't help but think, the author probably thinks, no, they're not. <laughs> I wonder if that's a post-war thing about people wanting a better world for their children, you know, the, these writers, you know, in the 60s. Oh, it's possible, isn't it? And I think... And I think also there's that sort of because space travel is such a new idea. And even in the early like TV stories, it's always like, can we step outside? Is there any air? Can anything happen? You know, the even just the very idea was later on, it's just taken as rare. We can just hop about and see what we like. Whereas then just survival or surviving is a real thing. And I, I had a flick through the annual, and uh, there's this sort of typical filler article um, called Aiming for the Moon. But this first, this first couple of lines really just makes you go, oh, this is old. So it says, man is aiming for the moon. I nearly did a pathé. Man is aiming for the moon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> will the Russians get there first or the Americans? It is an exciting race and nobody can be sure how it will end or when. The United States has said that the attempt will be made in the latter part of this decade. So there could be an Earth colony on the moon before the year 2000. Um, so it's like, you just realise how bloody old this stuff mm-hmm. is. Like, it is a different, like when you see stuff like that, just realising they're not even on the moon yet. You know, it's kind of, but I, th- I think I think that kind of gives. That's partly the, the all this speculative science fiction. Like, can anything survive? How long will we survive? Is you know, is there life out there? Can we live out there? I think that may be in the kind of in the, in the kind of mix as well. Well, yeah. Well, you think it'd only been in space for what six years, seven years at this point? Yeah, man yeah. had only been in space, and it's it's really sort of hard to, to sort of remember that, that this, this is cutting edge stuff this is this is new technology and back in those days of course um someone's had a really difficult time and a long journey and they're trying to get to safety there was no guarantee that refuse refugees would have been treated well you know when when they reach somewhere um so it's what a uh, world it's uh, <laughs> it, it does show how long ago that was doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> the more things change mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, I thought the, the interesting thing that you said, Conrad, as well, about um, the the idea of the, the doctors realised that he's he's 
taken around not by chance in the TARDIS, but but by some kind of destiny or something like that. So way, way before the Doctor's wife kind of makes it explicit that the TARDIS is choosing destinations where the Doctor can help people and and put things right. It's uh, you know that was ever suggested in the in the 20th century series at all. So that was uh, well ahead of its time, wasn't it? Yeah, there's something when he's talking to Ben about it. There's something a little bit um, Star Warsy about it, like you know, talking about the Force, and it is it's exactly mm. like you know old Alec Guinness explaining it to Mark Hamill. You know, like you know, how the Force works and things are guided by that principle. You know, that kind of slightly magic space wizard thing. Um, yeah, and I suppose that in a lot of um, Doctor Who fiction at the time, certainly in the TV comic um, comic strips and all the annuals, he is portrayed very much like a manic space wizard, isn't he? A magic and an odd and kind of different and, and things like that. I mean, it's like like the Sons of the Crab. This is a story that's playing with big concepts again. So the idea of destiny versus chance and what you do, should you do anything, how involved do you need to be? That's a, that's a big concept for the little kids on Christmas Day 1967. Definitely. Well, I mean, that was something that, frequently crossed my mind during the classic series it was like well it's a good thing the doctor turned up then you know (laughs) (laughs) so yes i mean um the doctor's wife did pretty much explain it very succinctly and um, it is sort of the only logical explanation i suppose that uh, the tardis sees what's happening and uh, sees probabilities and knows where the Doctor needs to go. But uh, now the Doctor can fly the TARDIS exactly where and when he wants to, so uh, most of the time. Mm-hmm. And there's that slight spear as well of the second Doctor being a bit more... He's not quite as old. He's a bit more 60s, so he's a bit more... <laughs> hey, man, just go with the flow. There's a little bit of that, I think, in the mix. Hey, well, you're maybe. a bird. That's cool. Well, he's always playing with his pipe. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Greyhound Trap One. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? This is a John Pertwee story read by John Colshaw, and he has got Pertwee down to a T. So that was actually quite uncanny to listen to. Um, he was possibly verging a little bit on Wurzel Pertwee rather than pure Dr. Pertwee, but. Uh, That's perfectly understandable, I think. Um, So it's Joe Grant and the Third Doctor, and there is an oil rig in the Antarctic, which is a horrible, horrible idea. Don't do that, kids. Do not put (laughs) oil rigs of any description in polar regions. Just don't do it. I have spoken. Um, But anyway, um, and Joe's Uncle Grant is working there he's in charge of course but um they've uh, they've lost contact with it so it's like right well let's go there then so they fly down to the antarctic get out of the plane and uh nick a snowcat because of course he did you know this is <laughs> john pertwee's doctor you're talking about here i've got and, a question uh, i've come to a question what is a snowcat i heard that and i was like i have no idea what that is well, it's a snow scooter kind of thing, basically. Okay. So, Thank you very as much. I recall, our Norway correspondent. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think James Bond has has had a few goes on them. Right. Uh, um, but one thing that was quite interesting in it, I thought, was um, 
you know the the Sherlock Holmes line once you have eliminate, eliminated the impossible that which remains however improbable must be the truth it's actually paraphrased at that point and I was sort of wondering was Sherlock Holmes still in copyright at that point so they weren't able to directly Ooh, quoted what, yeah. what was going on. but um, Good spot. But, uh, yeah, that was because uh, it was a brain-twistingly badly written paraphrase. <laughs> <laughs> it was Sherlock Holmes, I think, who once said that when you have proved everything impossible, but one thing, that thing, no matter how improbable, must be what you're looking for. It's not great, is it? (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't roll off the tongue. (laughs) Not exactly, no. They crash and they've knocked out, but when they wake up, there's Joe's uncle and they've been imprisoned by these machines or robots or something. There's, There's been this peculiar phenomenon where the sun has appeared to be getting larger and they have this conversation at the beginning of the story, and Joe's like, oh, is it going supernova then? And he's like, no, <laughs> but I think perhaps we're moving closer to it, so it appears bigger. And um, apparently what the robots are doing could very well have caused that. There's um, seismic instability. The Earth could be shifting on its axis. But, um, yeah, the things that have imprisoned them yeah, are some telepathic robots called the Clarktrists who have been living under the earth for millions of years like the Silurians they don't breathe air water is poison but it's an extinct volcano so what do you think the doctor does in this scenario (laughs) well (laughs) (laughs) he basically decides just to blow the whole thing up you know Dynamite down the, the corridor. Antarctic. Yeah, cool. <laughs> run away, run away, run away. No attempt to engage with these creatures or reason with them or anything. Just blow them the hell up, just like they did with the Silurians. And, um, yeah, so it was a short little story. If in doubt, blow it off and naff off. And if you have a chance for a ride on a snowcat, then go for it. Yeah. <laughs> So do you think that um, Joe Grant's uncle is called Grant Grant? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure whether they were referring to him by his surname or whether that was his first name. (laughs) I quite like the idea that her uncle was called Grant Grant. That is officially canon. That is Grant Grant. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It isn't. It is weird that they didn't bother thinking of a first name. He's just referred to. She just calls him uncle and he's referred Mm -hmm. to in the text as Grant. Do you think they would have giving him a first name if his name wasn't Grant Grant. (laughs) I think Grant 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 is a great name. That's a good (laughs) one. Doesn't she come from from a high-powered family? All her uncles are in amazing places. So she's got an uncle who works for UNIT, now an uncle who's on the first oil rig in Antarctica. It's amazing. Um, What a family. (laughs) And years later, I'm sure Joe would have been there protesting against that oil rig. <laughs> well, yeah, she would have done. Hundred percent. Is this another case a bit like uh, with the power of the Daleks? One in the last story. Is this a bit like a sort of terror of the Auton situation where they've taken her first scene where she's talking about her uncle and just kind of run like gone? Oh, she's got an uncle. Right, we'll have that. 
and mm. yeah it's like tegan's family isn't it they just to yeah. roll them out at regular intervals <laughs> it, as they say it does seem a bit influenced by the silurians because these the clatris are robots who've evolved from metallic molecules <laughs> in the earth into intelligent robot life but yeah, un unlike the Silurians, the Doctor makes absolutely no attempt to contact them, reason with them, find out what they want, broke a piece. As soon as he hears that they're there, <laughs> he says, we've no choice. It's war between them and us. War for survival. <laughs> <laughs> um, just declares war. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, and this is, this is one that um, I think kind of alternates. He, he doesn't feel very doctory. There's absolutely no evidence that the Clatris are responsible for the Earth drifting towards the sun or that that plan has been foiled by uh, by him uh, blowing up the volcano at all. So It's just like, seems legit, go for it, you know, yeah. That'll do a little bit of slapdash, isn't it? <laughs> but it, it felt sort of, when I, when I started listening to it, I was quite surprised. I, I didn't remember this story um, very well, um, but it felt sort of like all sort of, it was going to be dealing with climate change and, and all of that from, from where it was going at the start. And I thought this is going to be a big environmental story, but no, it just turns out it's some, some robots who've evolved who are going to get blown up. <laughs> but that would have fitted nicely with sort of the Pertwee era if it had been that kind of story. Yeah, it did fit this, like the, the tone of it, some, 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 some of how it sounded felt like, especially at the beginning, I was like, oh, this actually feels... This actually feels like a, a Pertwee story, and I think like John Colshaw, like he, he, this isn't a reading. Like he is fully acting this out. It's like listening mm -hmm. to an, an audio thing from the TV. It's like a different thing, isn't it? It's, it's interesting how some people read it, and he just like did a full three sixty yeah. mm -hmm. acting job on that. It was amazing. Um, yeah, but you could see the Doctor and Joe in the lab at the start. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. You can't, because that it. feels absolutely authentic and yeah then the doctor thinking well we've got to get there so how are we going to get there and yeah it, sa yeah. it sounded authentic but then yes it ultimately actually authentic. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah arguing with the military man as well that that all sort of is in keeping yeah. isn't it with the uh with the era so i was the i've just got a learn if you've got the annual story handy i just wrote a yep. thing i said with the first, the opening line best exposition ever Look, Doctor, said Joe Grant, the Doctor's young laboratory assistant. I'm afraid at the moment I couldn't care less if the tides are rising all over the world and if the astronomers are beginning to think that the sun is swelling gradually. All I'm worried about is that my uncle is on that oil rig in the Antarctic and the men there haven't been heard from for three days now. <laughs> Doctor that Who stared owlishly at her. <laughs> there we go. Ladies and gentlemen, exposition. Yes. Well, that's Beautiful. how you set the story going, isn't it? Boom, boom, boom. And read by Cy Hart, yeah. <laughs> which we love. <laughs> this is why you get hundreds of people at your library reading. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Beautiful. Sorry, I love that. But it's strange, isn't it? Because the Doctor, again, feels almost, but not quite Pertwee. So he's he's grumpy and he is, does have a, a sort of a touch of the patronising. Does love a gadget. Does love um, a mode of transport. But he's absolutely horrible to everyone. So actually, maybe it's like the demons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't. It's not the best of the bunch, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, it was. Um interesting short little story but a bit brutal 
We expect more from our Time Lords. It's like a Sun Tower and it's short and brutal. <laughs> Greyhound to trap one, over. Trap one, go ahead, Greyhound, over. So that takes us on to Famine on Planet X from the 1979 annual. Wow. This is a story. <laughs> this is a completely bonkers story. Um, but, um, it all happens because Doctor Who has forgotten to fill the actualizing filter with Essence of Valor. Now, if only he kept his Essence of Valor topped up, he wouldn't have appeared where he appears now. And when he does his, gets out his star charts, gets his maps out, he finds that they, the Doctor and Leela have arrived on a planet that's only marked by an X. And unfortunately... On Planet X, there is a famine right now, and the children of Ra are going hungry. There's nothing to eat, there's a desolate plain, and suddenly the TARDIS arrives. The hunger has been gnawing at these poor children for for, day, for six moons, six moons, in fact, since they last ate, so they are really hungry. And they send their leader... Og to go and meet the doctor and poor old lovely Og who mm. communicates with strange shapes skipping between his twin horns. <laughs> like you know, like you do. Like you do. <laughs> and it's like living hieroglyphs formed in between his horns, says the doctor. So he's he's on this, he's he's picking this out and he's worked it out. And um the doctor obviously Works well with children. He he um, gets him food. After Og has learnt to mimic the Doctor and repeat his words back at him, so that they understand that. But it's Lena. Food, Yeah. But Leela, Leela works it all out. So Og has sneaked into the TARDIS and has has noticed and understood one of the symbols that comes between Og's um, horns, and it's the symbol of peace. And that's all they want is peace and food, but the octopoids on the planet are going to wipe them out. And so they, the octopoids turn up, start blasting away, but the Doctor does something with some seeds, manages to feed people, explains that if they... If they aren't nice, then he'll take all the food away and everything's all right at the end. But before, as the TARDIS is leaving, after the Doctor has solved the famine and is leaving, um, see, the octopoids have planted the seeds that the Doctor had given them in the shape of the symbol of peace. So there Aww. you go, kids. There's a lovely story for you. That was a nice one. I thought that was it was absolutely bonkers, but it was it was a good message and really, really beautifully read by Louise Jameson, who is always good. But what I with like Dan Starkey doing with the Dan Starkey, Dan Starkey's Tom Baker is just amazing, isn't it? Really, really good. And they, I don't know whether they were in the studio together or, or working on this together, but the 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 sort of interplay between the Doctor and Leela in the few scenes where Leela actually gets to speak or do anything in this story. She's not very proactive, um, which is a shame because she's always really good on TV. But Louise Jameson always sort of gives it her all. And I think it was a, one of the 
um, the best readings on on this disc. I really liked this one. I mean, I love her voice anyway, and yeah. um, when she's performing as Leela again as well, that's that's beautiful. I've recently been listening to um, Zagreus. I know I'm uh, late to the party on that one, but again, hearing her playing Leela with against Re- Lala Ward's Romana in that that was very powerful. I loved that. Yeah, and that was the first time she'd done it in a long time as well. And it was just like she'd walked back in and she knew exactly. And she's a a phenomenal actor, isn't she? She really, really is. There's a line early on. It says um, about uh, Leela looked around her with wild eyes, her hand on her dagger, backing away towards the wall like a threatened animal. And can immediately think, picture her. Um, doing that, yeah. The, um, the <laughs> now, the size just held up an illustration here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, not Lila's <laughs> usual costume, is it? <laughs> uh, well, here so this week she's feet, uh, she's um, enjoying well, wearing a Mac and uh, <laughs> a short <laughs> denim skirt, um, what looks like um, a nice pair of knee-high boots. I think I, I know the picture is from. It references from Seeds of Doom, isn't it? With uh, yeah. Sarah Jane. <laughs> but then some of the uh, the interior, the TARDIS stuff that we hear, it says that the uh, in the control room it's got a table, a computer bank, it's got bookshelves. It's it's nothing like the the uh, the console room of the day, is it? No, it's it's like the Twelfth Doctor's TARDIS yeah. isn't it? with <laughs> tables and chairs and and bookshelves and and the lot. And his cosmic screwdriver. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I want one of those. I <laughs> <laughs> home today and brought the cosmic screwdriver. I love that. And the plasti metal books. Mm-hmm. I love the plasti yes. metal books. Mm. I'm going to go on wish.com. I bet they've got cosmic <laughs> screwdrivers. <laughs> Careful what you order. Mm. Watch out for the shipping. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, it's quite a good one for it for actually to be told on audio because there's the thing of um, you know this alien repeats in their different voices and it kind of helps you know like it's it's it was quite a challenge for the for the readers to be able to kind of you know you have to really kind of listen to, to whether it's the Doctor Lilo talking where whether it's the creatures sort of aping them but it was quite it kind of worked well in a slightly mid ninety way you know slightly um, I thought it was good. And we, we get a little tale of Leela's mum as well, which is... Oh, yes. This, yeah, that uh, was a nice bit of back history, wasn't it? Yeah, never never been referenced before, I don't think, has she? Or since, possibly. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did, did you think when the uh, when the Doctor finds that the... Was it the actualizer? The actualizing filter has run out of essence of Valor. And then there's uh, when Og comes into the TARDIS, there's blue liquid... Um, dripping from his eyes like he's like he's crying, and I thought that's going to be a replacement for Essence of Valor, isn't it? That's what's going to um, recharge his eyes. I was surprised they didn't go that way, but I thought that was uh, that was going to be a neat little solution to their predicament. Have you ever thought of a career in uh, writing annual stories, Mark? There's a, there's a career for you. That's exactly the kind of thinking that we get these stories. You know. Yes, oddly. The es- lack of essence of Valo gets them into this story, but then it's never referenced at the end, <laughs> and they just leave. <laughs> so they say that the, the cosmic radiation from the storm. Oh, yes, it retard. Yeah, recharged it, like- it sufficiently that that they don't need the essence of Valo after all. Oh, Come see- here, alien child. Let me harvest your tears. Is not a great. <laughs> <laughs> Leela, make him cry. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, well, the recharging the TARDIS from Cosmic Rays, I that's it's the rift. Yeah, mm. no new ideas, Russell. <laughs> I bet right. he read this annual. <laughs> but the idea of them communicating with with symbols by uh, changing the shape of the foreheads is a is a really nice idea. I think. Yeah, and they, very alien. And, and they, the, the way they introduced the the aliens was quite good because they just kept adding little clues about them. So you kind of found out that they had oh they've got horns. Then a couple of sentences later, they just mentioned the tentacles, and later like the single eye. But they just they just kind of just normally they just go it was a fearsome creature with this this on eye these horns and it just yeah. gradually drip fed, fed. i thought that was neat that was that was going to give a bit of interest and build mm. i mean it's never fully coalesced in my brain i mean the, the one illustration doesn't show the whole creature mm. and i'm not allowed to say what the <laughs> what it looks like am i <laughs> not <laughs> oh no perhaps not <laughs> mm, I was a bit baffled because at one point it was described as a three-legged octopoid, and I thought, "Hmm, that can't <laughs> be right." <laughs> well, they had a terrible accident if he's a three-legged mm-hmm. octopoid. <laughs> but it's nice that the doctor neither reacts with fear and revulsion nor just declares war on them. Yeah, uh, he, uh, he sees that they need help, and uh, and immediately. Uh, feeds Og and his friends, and then uh, and then helps the wider famine as well. So it's, uh, it's a nice. Yeah, luckily, the food selected was not poisonous to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I noticed one thing when I was reading along because I read along with this one, um, and I noticed that Louise changed, and uh, there's a dialogue where Louise says, uh, where Leela says, "I don't something," and she changes it to "I do not" when she read oh, it, which I know she does when yeah. she reads. It's just that's just beautiful. That's why it's really nice having the original characters reading this. Yeah, it was a nice story that one. I like that took me back to my childhood. I remember reading that one on my grandma's um, carpet in Bath when I was very young. So yeah, Aww. I remember having my co- yeah, my copy of this particular annual when I was watching <sighs> City of Death on the telly. So well, it's all sort of all this muddle of Doctor Who in my my head from when I was very young. But I remember that. Really vividly before my sister cut it to shreds. Okay, let it go. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Do some breathing, and we're all going to be fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, I have my original copy of the next annual that we're going to in 1983. Yeah, so from the 1983 annual, we have Jeffrey Beavers reading Night Flight to Nowhere. Mm. Uh, this is Doctor with Tegan and Nyssa and they've gone to the airport to make Tegan happy but not not this time so that she can catch a flight but so that she can meet up with her best friend from the stewardess training course Uh, I'm not quite sure how they've arranged to meet or how she knew she would be there Um, but they're they're there anyway and she even knows what flight she's going to be on the doctor's utterly fed up. He's got. He doesn't want to be in the airport. He does not want to meet Tegan's friend. He's worried that she's going to be like Tegan. <laughs> he even suggests that he doesn't really want another companion like her next time. Maybe, maybe a nice, quiet person like Nissa would be uh, would be better. Uh, but when they do find um, Tegan's friend, she doesn't recognise her, which is uh, which is a bit embarrassing. But it's because she's in a weird hypnotic state. So they follow her to a, to the flight, but they can't get through security. 
but they do spot a familiar face going through security, the man who chartered the flight. It's the master. The, we've got the Aroni, <laughs> Aroni TV villain in one of these stories. Um, he's got a nefarious plan. So he takes off on the flight, and the doctors are daring TARDIS short hop onto a moving aircraft, uh, which I think that those bits are really cool, the way he doesn't quite get it right, and the, the, he's, he has to move it a little bit. And then even then, he's a little bit off the, uh, off the floor of the plane and stuff. Um, only for them to immediately then be captured by the master as soon as they get on board the flight, tied up so he can explain his nefarious plan uh, that he has hypnotized a bunch of uh, businessmen and civil servants. He's going to take them through a, a tear or a rip in, in space that he's created uh, where he's going to, I get a think, <laughs> he's, he's, once they've gone through this aperture, I think he's, uh, he's not, I get the point, that's where he's going to replace them with robots, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are so immature, aren't we? I don't know what you're talking about. I think so that's a word Mark is avoiding here. Don't, <laughs> must I know? Not you. There's a word they use in the story over and over and over again <laughs> to to describe um, this this rending of space that the uh, that the master is trying to take the plane to. It's not entirely clear, but I, I think his plan is takes them through there. He's got some sort of laboratory. He'll replace them with androids, bring them back again, put them into the seats of power. Um, and then start a nuclear war, which will destroy the world to annoy the Doctor. <laughs> to be fair, that's not the Master's most bonkers plan ever, <laughs> particularly the Ainley Master. <laughs> so, Well, yeah, time flight much. I mean... <laughs> Don't you think he looks like Delgado in the pictures, though? He does. Yes. He, does. Mm-hmm. he completely really does. does. I think there's a lot of dissonance there with Jeffrey Beavers reading it. (laughs) (laughs) And we know it's supposed to be Anthony Ainley's master, and yet you're looking at pictures of Roger Delgado. Yeah, it's... um, I mean, I love Jeffrey Beavers' uh, master voice. Could listen to that a lot. That is amazing. We we saw him at the Warp Convention a few years ago, didn't we, Denise? Yeah. um, he could just uh, he talks and talks, and then when he turns it on, it's really chilling, isn't it? He just uh, mm. it, it, it's, it's fantastic, fantastic voice. In the, in this story, when you know he's narrating it all the way through, and it's the Doctor, and you're just trying to listen along with the story. And the first time he says, I think he just says, "Welcome, Doctor," um, in the Master's voice, I just wrote, "Scream!" I just wrote, "Screams," because it's like that is it is like it like it's exactly as you said. When he turns it on, my God, your blood runs cold. It's mm-hmm. re- he's a real deal. I loved the twist that was very 80s that this um, tearing own time and space was the Bermuda Triangle. That was brilliant. <laughs> that was so of the, so 1983, it's untrue. That was really great. I'd forgotten that. Do you think it's true that if planes disappear in that region, they don't even bother to investigate? Because that seems to be <laughs> the reason you pick that area is because, well, nobody will, nobody will go looking. They'll just, they'll just, <laughs> just write it off as if you're going to try it. Oh, 
Not they, will, <laughs> they will not look for survivors or <laughs> look for the black box or anything. <laughs> uh, but they, they escape from the plane um, and the, the robotic pilots um, take it through the... Rift. <laughs> the rift, the rift, the rift in the in the sky, um, but they're, they're sort of acting as though something terrible will happen if they if they go through there. But it must be safe enough because the master presumably travels through this uh, this portal every now and again. So, but they, they seem like it would be absolutely disastrous to go through. So they just escape, and at least so does the master because he he travels through into his own through the gateway into his own realm, presumably. That's incredible, Mark. I, I, I've changed my mind. You shouldn't be writing uh, annual stories. You should be writing a thesaurus because that, I have never heard so many words for for the other word you're avoiding. I mean, that's incredible and quite incredible. <laughs> it's, oh, it's, and then it's another story that ends on a oh oh really oh is a really downbeat ending. It just leaves them all in a cupboard. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with, a doctor, with a nod of an inevitability, the doctor realised that he would definitely, very definitely, meet the master again. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. The, the, I, lo- I loved the hero moment. The bit now, this is my favourite bit of the story, where they're all on, you know, their passengers are all being hypnotised, and the doctor, Nissa and Tegan have to sit there through the whole flight, just not getting hypnotised. Turn around one minute later. Our, our trusty air stewardess is standing there, free from her shackles, holding a nail file. Yes, yes. Yeah. Go Tegan. And then she frees everybody else. Yes. Take that, Doctor, with your snotty <laughs> attitude. Because that is, I couldn't believe in the first line. And it is very what I imagine was going on either in the fifth Doctor or Peter Davison's head of, of uh, I think he says, one day he would get himself a companion who didn't talk so much. And it's like, it, while that is not a nice attitude, that's probably quite accurate to what the fifth Doctor seems to, <laughs> like on television, that seems to be how he treats her. But she got her day because she's not daft she's a plucky australian air stewardess and she knows her stuff and he's got nissa with him who says a single line in the whole story (laughs) (laughs) and doesn't really get a great deal to do she's just sort of there (laughs) well it's nice to see the master going back to his his trusty old um ways where um he's posing as rupert masters of the (laughs) masters corporation he's not putting a lot of effort into this week is he (laughs) But it, it, it does feel legitimate. Like it's got the it's got the hypnotizing, you know, government officials, um, androids, and stuff. It does feel, you know, you know it, it, these are all elements of. This is obviously just like exactly as you said, Denise. It's just time, someone's seen time flight and gone right. Let's just do that. Well, but, with a little bit of spearhead from space in the mix. Yeah, yeah, that is true. It's a classic android reveal that as well. He's pulling the face off, uh, isn't it, for, uh, to, to see all circuitry underneath as well. Yeah, but it felt sort of authentically Davison-esque, I thought. So in a way that none of the stories we'd got to so far um, really did it. I know there was a real push sort of in the when JNT took over to make sure that the stories were much more Doctor Who-y than they ever had been before. And it, I don't know whether it makes the stories more enjoyable or makes them slightly less than than the annuals that we'd had before because the uh, the previous sort of 10 years of annuals or whatever had been so odd and strange and weird stories that were 
tangentially related to Doctor Who, that when you get one that's suddenly really like Doctor Who in 1982-83, it, it's kind of jarring, I think, in a collection like this, where suddenly you feel this is, yeah, you can sort of see this happening. And the illustrations as well, you know, they're obviously just drawings based on the publicity shots, so you recognise all of the views of Tegan because you've seen them all in Doctor Who monthly millions of times and... Uh... Yeah, and everyone's given the rights to their likenesses suddenly, so everyone mm. actually starts to look like they do on TV. Yeah, I think there's something more exciting, like you say, Sai, about the ones where it, it's the people that aren't as familiar with Doctor Who and they're, they're just bringing their own ideas and, and take on it. Because, I mean, this, I mean, especially now, we've got so many Doctor Who short stories and fiction that's something that's so out there and and so far removed from anything else is is more interesting in a way, isn't it? I think so, and particularly in the early days of Doctor Who um, fiction, when there wasn't a lot of original fiction around Doctor Who, that that feeling that anything goes, and you could just throw the Doctor into any world, any kind of story, and it doesn't matter; it's still Doctor Who. That's yeah, that's kind of brilliant, and we we've sort of lost some of that that danger, I think, as we go along through through these stories. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the last ever, not the last ever Doctor Who annual, the last ever Doctor Who annual of the twentieth century, nineteen eighty six, with the story Time Wake. Yeah, now this this one is a really interesting story i thought um because there are echoes again of um doctor who in 1985 so mm. doctor and perry lands in london they're on the tra- trail of an alien the doctor's got some gadget that he's using to try and trace a time anomaly or um something they end up going into the sewers to investigate now i've seen this on tv Mm. Perry's busy whining at them with with the doctor but they end up going through this tunnel through a time wake into 1720 so it's a good time travel story and in in the cellar of this inn that they turn up in 1720 there is a replica of every prime minister from Warpole to Pitt the Younger to Disraeli, Gladstone, Lloyd George, Churchill, Wilson, and Thatcher. Whoa. And they only know, um, sort of later on, it turns out that they've only gone up to Mrs. Thatcher because the time wake started in 1986 and they didn't know of any other prime minister after that. So this is this is good stuff. And it's really good. And I, I remember really liking this story on Christmas Day, 1985. Um and sort of the time traveling, the monster in the um, sort of in the time wake with his blue face and his blue hands, who's sort of behind it all. Um, it's got time travel. There's a t- someone has made a time machine. The doctor manages to do something doctory and pull out the one part of the machine that will stop it working. The um, the villain gets trapped in his own trap, um, and. It even has a punchline at the end. So I this is is just a good fun fun story. I and read really, 
really well by Colin Baker, who who really knocks it out of the park from his Perry to the voice that he gives Task. You can sense it. He's he's really enjoying reading this one. I think. I mean, how lucky are we getting an actual doctor to read one of these stories? I mean, it's fabulous, isn't it? It's just like we're not worthy, very much so. But uh, yeah, he he's enjoying it, and it's always lovely to hear him. Yeah, he's he's amazing, and and when he he changes his register to sound like the doctor like he did on tv and he absolutely does and it completely gives you the feels it's like it's 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 unbelievable and like exactly you said you think i can't believe it i'm listening to doctor who you know like it's mm. it's fantastic and yeah. I, I i was i was very very lucky and um, i got to work with colin in a, in the studio once and the most fascinating thing about him is in big finish that are very famous for their lunches and any actor given free food is all about the lunches i vividly remember seeing colin at lunchtime not sitting there stuffing his face like we all were he was in the gallery with the director looking over the scripts like picking sort of picking at it you know i don't think i'd say this i think i'd say that and that is just him all over he is he's in he cares so much about this stuff and he loves language he loves the detail of it mm. so you know he'll have done loads of bits and bobs as he goes on this he's yeah just a legend. But his doctor was really well characterized in this story and really mm. authentic it, again this is another story that feels very much like the era they're evoking it in exactly the right way but the doctor's actually quite likable and there's a nice relationship with perry there's not so much whining they're working things out together in a way that you mm. didn't see so much on tv and it sort of gives you an insight into this what should have been a really good relationship between the doctor and companion and that's that's rare in in one of the annuals where they're actually doing better than the tv show was <laughs> at something and here we are right at the end of the annuals <laughs> compared to the fifth doctor's uh, comments about tegan and uh, Troughton's about uh, Paul Ben. I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, he's lovely to Perry, which is unbelievable. <laughs> Maybe that isn't as authentic as, as we claim. He's a robot double, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, I thought the, the way he immediately leaps to robot doubles is quite funny in this. Because um, Perry says something like, well, we know all these prime ministers weren't kidnapped. And he says, do we? And he goes... No, you're right. There must be robot doubles. It's <laughs> <laughs> only got a few pages. You've got to sketch your story in quickly. <laughs> but um, especially listening to this, because the previous story has been about robot doubles as well. <laughs> it's like, yeah, another robot double plan. And, and I also, on first listen, thought it was the master because it describes initially this figure in a black cloak and everything. Yes, and me too. I'd forgotten it was Task. <laughs> yeah, I thought... Why would you put these two stories back to back on a collection? <laughs> Both of them got the master with the exact same plan. But yeah, when it wasn't, that was a nice surprise. And I, I wondered if that was, if they were trying to uh, do a bit of a fake out there with that um, because it was time travel because we, we hadn't seen the time machine yet at that point. It just just this dark figure in a black cloak and everything. Uh, whether the reader, um, say on Christmas Day, would have thought, "Oh, it's the master." Mm. Yeah, particularly I'm sort of looking just leafing through the annual, the first story in the annual, 1986, is a master story where he's wearing a cloak. There right. he is. Ah, so they, well, that cloak. would have been a... So it could have been a, a, a sort of mistake out. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> Love that. The resolution's really cool as well, I think. Uh, the um, Leading them, uh, leading the Andrew, sort of slaving them all to one 
one control box yeah, and I'm yeah. pushing it out in a boat into the Thames and uh, all the uh, this procession of, <laughs> of robot prime ministers just wading out into mm-hmm. the Thames. Mm. And it's really doctory. That's a really, mm. really good, good piece of work. Never to be seen again, though. I mean, no matter how much mudlarking you do, you never find any bits of robot aliens uh, <laughs> washed up on the Thames. But, but yes, that was that was a nice visual image as well. And uh, luckily, it was early morning, so the seventeen, the eighteenth century people didn't get too freaked out by it all. I like the little detail of him rubbing his cat on his collar before, yes. for luck before he went and did something. It, just, it really felt like the real thing, this one, I think. Yeah, that, that was really nice. Um, and the, the sort of the detail about the smells as well, like the, the climbing into the sewer and then the, the Thames itself smells really bad. And then, like you say, Sai, it sort of uh, ends, ends with the, the gag. He's sort of saying, well, I think I need a bath after all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so nice historical detail as well. So, yeah, it was just a, a nice classy story to round the collection off. Yeah, I think you should head to the Rani's bathhouse. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. <laughs> ah, that's it. <laughs> and then the two little um, two little features we've got as well, which which round it out. Yeah. Um, so I think, look, those last two stories do feel, I think, agree with you, side. Like, you can feel the hand of J&T start to influence the stories i think that's why they're definitely much more sort of on brand as it were yes. than, than other ones were um and these two little uh, features which of course you know you pack, you pack your annuals with with fillers uh, come from 1982 and 1984 so i don't know which one to start with i might start with the the um with, with one doctor five men and that's as titles go whichever way you look <laughs> at it that is a choice and how savoury that choice is, is entirely down to you and your mind. Um, so this one is from 1994, and it's read by Jeffrey Beavers, and it is a sort of run-through each incarnation of the Doctor. And it's pretty good, actually. It's um, it's a, a very good sort of sort of perspective of as the Doctor as a Time Lord. So it's not just your generic crotchety, you know, uh, cosmic hobo stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's not a bad sort of few sentences about each Doctor. Um the re- but there's nothing sort of hugely contentious or exciting here, apart from the reading, which is our Jeffrey Beavers, who is unbelievable. And I just kept writing, he just sounds sinister. I mean, he just... <laughs> he can make the most innocent line sound sinister. He really he? does. The like, first Doctor was played by William Hartnell. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. It's just sepulchral. Everything, and he reads everything slowly and deliberately and deliciously. So everything. And it kind of made... He read this, he read this quite innocuous sentence out, but the way he read it... He said, he's described the, he's talking about uh, William Hartnell, and he said, uh, the first doctor, he said, he, he was the first to encourage, in, encounter the threat of the Daleks in an adventure called The Dead Planet. And he says it as if to say, there's no argument here. That's what, and you, you said, if you were in a conversation, you wouldn't go, yes, but you'd just go, yeah, sure, that's what it's called. It's like, and there'll be no one, we'll hear no more about it, will we? It's sort of, it's sort of, you wouldn't dare argue with him. It's, it's, it's really funny, just re, re, you know, a fairly nice sort of jolly piece. I was going to say, just him yeah. saying the bits, and he had a car called Bessie. And also a Whomobile. <laughs> yeah. just, wow. Everything you're like, yeah, okay, just, just leave me alone. Let me get out alive. Um, 
Yeah, so, so there's not much to say about the actual pieces. Like it's um, you know a nice run through the five doctors as were, was then. Although very interestingly, um, you know Jeremy Beavers is Jeffrey Beavers rather is a very uh, you know well established voice actor and all this kind of stuff. So it's very interesting that he too chose the pronunciation of Metabolist Three. Yes. So, you okay. know, we give Matt Smith a very hard time about that. Mm-hmm. He mispronounced it. Da, 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 da. But actually, to a normal human being uh, approaching this made-up word, this kind of validates <laughs> that's how a classy actor sees this word and reads it properly. It's us that have made it all up with our mm-hmm. space names. So There's probably Pertwee getting it wrong all that time anyway. <laughs> it's more likely, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, that was that one. Then the the other, other little one was going back a couple of years, but it's funny, that was... That felt for a little filler. That felt it, it, it was. It was each one of the sentences were quite accurate and it was quite detailed. There was more Time Lord stuff. He talked about the War Games, the th- three docs about Omega. It's sort of more credible. I think that is we're we're sort of reaching the point now where, as, as Sai pointed to the earlier stories, that JNT is starting to get a firmer grip on it. The um, I can't say the same of Secrets of the TARDIS. Uh, from 1982. Actually, Secrets of the TARDIS maybe is a good title for this one because. The TARDIS remain, you know, is a secret and it intrigues you, it draws you in. And by the time you finish listening to it, it's still a secret and you're no no wiser. Um, so it starts um, pretty much by saying, and I quote, and I think this is almost the, you can feel the writer saying this. Truth be told, we don't really know much about it. Uh, but we've managed to piece together one or two facts from snippets of conversation we've overheard. I mean, this is, I mean, it's not TARDIS wiki, is it? It's, um, so this writer really is struggling. And the facts he manages to come up with are what TARDIS stands for, that it's stuck as a police box, that it's full of sophisticated electronic equipment, and then it's bigger on the inside. Wow. And it, fin- and it finishes, and that is really all we know. If we find out any more... We'll let you know. <laughs> quite, quite how they'll let us know. Like next Christmas, maybe we're going to hang on for some more thrilling tidbits this, there. So this, this year we found out there was a zero room and cloisters. <laughs> yeah, right. And that it's infinite, although it's still possible to jettison 25% of it. See, this is already more interesting stuff than you would possibly fit into this. And you can just feel that you can just feel every single thing he's got to talk about. Him just stretching out everything. Like, it's just a word count filler. Mm-hmm. That's the, the dog ate his homework on the original draft. <laughs> absolutely. He had to do that one on the bus. <laughs> it, it really <laughs> felt like it. But I think in those two little filler pieces, they tell you a little bit about, you know, the differences between, you know, the, these annuals are just a lot of extrapolated, made up, you know, uh, fanciful stuff. And then, you know, you, as you go sort of go on a little bit, you get a bit more kind of screen accurate stories, and which you prefer is up to you. Yeah, I mean, at the time that was that was a big departure, the secrets of the TARDIS, because there hadn't been a feature about Doctor Who itself in the annual since the first Patrick Troughton one. That's interesting. So that was a huge departure to actually have a filler article about the show itself rather than your space, space travel myths yeah. and legends or or whatever. So actually that was a huge departure at the time. That's interesting. And then it sort of moves on the following year. It's all features about Doctor Who and not about space. So it's sort of behind the scenes features and yes. and set visits and things like that. So it's it suddenly feels very different. So it's just that sort of transitional point between 
a standard world distributor's annual to something that's mm. a really a Doctor Who focused thing. I love well, that. we had a lot of books around the time of the twentieth anniversary, didn't we? And they just yeah, so suddenly all facts sort of kept on coming everywhere. after that. You know, yeah. you've got your twenty years in the Tardis, you've got your Doctor Who celebration, you've got your technical manual, Key you've got to your time. book, your pattern book, you've got um, that book about making of Kinder, the title of which escapes me, but that was a very text. good read. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, the making of a TV serial. So there was all of this stuff, and a lot of it did repeat a lot of the same material. You know, it was all, yes, I know this, you know. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, just looking at the 1986 annual here, we've got an interview with um, Dorka Naradjik, who oh, was the wow. makeup designer, talking about how she designed um, Revelation of the Daleks. So this is sort of really up to date. So yeah, it's, it's, sort of miles away from will man ever step on the moon yeah mm. <laughs> yeah yes the five doctors thing or the, the five men one doctor thing is the sort of thing that as a kid i would have poured over before i had access to all the stories um, I did, Mark. You, <laughs> yeah I mean, but like eight or nine years probably after the annual came out i'd have, I'd have picked it up at a you know school fair or a you know a charity shop or something like that and i used to read the um Remember the uh, the Doctor Encyclopedia that they, they only did like the first two or three volumes of. They never made it all the way to Z, and I would just sit and read entries of that about these stories that I'd never seen. And mm. uh, I think you know, kind of in those days, you just read anything to, to find out um, about the stories that, that had gone before. Yeah. Yes, might... my program guides are very very well thumbed. Yeah. Yeah, the, the first one I remember of those was the uh, the making of Doctor Who, the Terence Sticks ones, but the one with mm. uh, with the one with Tom Baker on the front, and yeah. that's like had actual story you know, production codes and all kind of like that was it, you just had so little to go on. It was it was that, and you know, for me, Weetabix and Typhoon cards and annuals. It was how you. That was yeah, pretty I mean, much it. I mean, I was say for me, it was was the annuals. It was um, the um, Doctor Who, the making of the of a television series. So going behind the scenes of the visitation mm. and meeting all yeah. the different production crew and finding out what they did and what these jobs that you read about in the, in the open, um, in the closing credits were all about. So yeah. it was all that sort of sudden expansion of knowledge suddenly in the early eighties, where you were finding out behind the scenes, you were finding out more than just the stories. And even the annuals are, are dipping into that with how they make Doctor Who rather than, the facts about the fictional series mm. yeah. and that, that slow sort of crossover. But I, I, I love the annuals because they're so bonkers and mad and just the, this anything goes version of Doctor Who where it doesn't really matter if it, if Sarah Jane isn't quite like Sarah Jane or Leela's just a bit like Leela and she's dressed in a Mac. It doesn't matter because it's still for for a whole generation of kids, this was Doctor Who as much mm-hmm. as it was on TV, as much as it was in TV comic or Marvel or wherever. Mm-hmm. And it's a snapshot of a simpler time when people weren't sort of strangling the brand and making sure it was exactly like it is on TV, when you could just write anything. Yeah, or you can write the you can watch the same episode twenty five times in a week if you want to. And yeah. Where we without, just had breaking these... the, without breaking your VHS. Yeah, where we just had these mind-expanding stories that 
bear very little resemblance to the TV series, but were absolutely Doctor Who. And they're still fantastic just to look through the art, everything like that. They 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 don't you know hold back, do they? They 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 really um, they really go for it with the with the artwork, with the design. Yeah, and those those early ones, those those really early ones in the sixties, they've got so so many limited such limited colours they can use. They can only use like four or five colours per page. But like it, it, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful little time capsule of you know of yeah. just a different then, age. Yeah, you get to nineteen seventy nine, and suddenly you've got these huge sort of painted, properly painted pictures that almost look like Tom Baker. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, no, the, the pictures actually of Tom Baker in that annual are particularly good. But when they have the full colour spreads, they're, they're beautiful. I mean, that, that painting of, of Tom Baker in the sort of opening pages of the annual. Yeah. Oh, that really is lovely, great. yeah. That's yeah. really beautiful. And if you can't afford LSD or any mind-expanding drugs, a quick flick through a 70s annual has a very similar effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, particularly 1977. Wow. Yeah, man. <laughs> If you can remember it, you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> this is turning out to be sort of a really nice set of collection uh, of stories, isn't it, that they're doing over the, over the years. I thought we'd get one, and that would be, be a sort of nice sidestep, something different for the BBC. But it's really nice that we're sort of, was this the fourth one? Of, At least, of, I of think. Just of Doctor Who. Yeah, just and the Dalek the ones, ones as well. And obviously K9 that we did earlier in the year. Yeah. So yeah. it's turned out to be a nice little little range, and I love going back and experiencing all these stories. Yeah, there's things I wouldn't think to revisit that much, I think, other than through this. But And it gives them a whole new lease of life because hearing them, you know, in, in some cases, you said, Conrad, like, actually performed by, you know, Dan Starkey, Tom Baker, John Coulshaw. It's, it gives them, uh, gives them a, a much more dimension. Yeah. Well, we're running out of Essence of Valor as we speak. I ran out years ago, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. Um, but yeah, hopefully there'll be another volume of this um, out fairly soon of, uh, of annual stories that we can revisit. If not, I'll come and I'll just come on and read you some. It'll be fine. Right. <laughs> oh, I would love that. We'll do that for the yes. Trap on Christmas special, shall we? Oh, Sci yeah. <laughs> Heart Story Time okay, Christmas. Right. Yes, please. Send in your ideas for which stories you'd like. Uh, I've got the set, so we'll 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 do <laughs> it. Let's do it. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for listening at home. Uh, join us next time when a different panel will be looking at something else from the world of Doctor Who. And in the meantime, you can find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider leaving us a star rating or a review so that other fans can find the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Big Red Dash. <laughs> <laughs> we got through the whole thing without that. <laughs> the doctor had a rare chance to be alone he wondered what had happened to the master in the gash would he survive <laughs>